right? So if you try to build a house on top of a really crappy foundation, the house is not going to last very long. So you want to make sure that not only your core stability, but your stability around all your joints. So that would be like, are you really good at planks? Or if you know what a dead bug is, it's lying on your back and then like maybe squeezing a, a giant exercise ball. And are you feeling that in the core? Or are you feeling that in the lower back? Are you feeling lower back pain all day uh, when you're at work or sitting in a chair? Because if that's something that you are experiencing, you probably need to focus a bit there before you start doing your you know bench presses and transverse step ups and all the other fancy stuff that you can do in a program. Welcome back to the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. Shanti here as always. This is episode 28. Glad to have you with us. So let's see. It's uh, March 18th that we're releasing this episode. So I figure I'll start off by saying good news to everybody. And that good news is that it's going to be spring in a few days. And so that means two things. The weather's warming up and hiking season's not too far away. But maybe, just maybe, if you're like me, maybe because of winter, maybe because of COVID, maybe you're just not in shape the way you want to be, where you know you can go out and crush the trail. So we figured we at Out and Back can help out with that. And so today, Abby is back with me, and we're going to be chatting it up with Billy Galrin, a personal trainer who also runs the website Backcountry Fitness. Now, Billy's a super cool dude, and we're going to be talking with him today about how you can get your body and your mind in shape for hitting the trails this spring and summer. And what's really cool about our chat with Billy today is that he doesn't live in the backcountry or anything like that. He lives and works with his clients in Boston, Massachusetts, not exactly wilderness area. So the cool thing about today's show is that we're going to learn ways that you can get yourself in shape for the backcountry, even if you're nowhere near the backcountry, if you're confined to like a small space or a city that doesn't necessarily have any mountains for you to train on. Well, concrete mountains, but that's a whole other thing. Anyway, the point is, lots of great tips we're going to learn from Billy today, and we're super excited about it. But first, before we begin, real quick, we want to remind you that if you're planning on heading into the backcountry this spring, this summer, or whenever, you're going to need a way to be able to navigate and know where you are at all times, including in areas where you're not in cell service. And as part of that, you're going to want to get yourself Gaia GPS. With hundreds of backcountry maps that you can download before heading out on your next adventure, Gaia GPS is the gold standard of offline backcountry navigation tools. And right now, if you head over to GaiaGPS.com slash podcast, you can get yourself up to 50% off on a premium membership. That's G-A-I-A-GPS.com slash podcast. Do yourself a favor. Right after you're done with your next workout, after listening to this show with Billy, get on over to that link and get yourself the gold standard of backcountry maps, Gaia GPS, and make your next backcountry trip that much better and that much safer. All right, I'm ready. Abby's ready. Billy's ready. Let's do this. Who the heck are you? What's your name? So I am Billy Garon. Um, I'm a personal trainer based here in Boston, Mass, and I run Backcountry Fitness. And what the heck is Backcountry Fitness? <laughs> so Backcountry Fitness, good question. Uh, Backcountry Fitness is designed to help uh, hikers, mountaineers, alpinists, trekkers, anybody who's really an outdoor athlete prepare for whatever project adventure uh, hike they're taking on, um, whether it be just, you know, getting better at going into their backyard and getting up and down the mountain and feel like they're in better shape or taking on Everest Base Camp or doing um, Aconcagua or whatever it might be from, you know, I kind of work with a whole range of people. But the goal is just to help them become more prepared, both physically, uh, mentally, and just be safer uh, on the mountain or wherever they might be uh, during those adventures. Very cool. So digging into your background a little bit, it looks like you initially got into personal training. Yes. And so I'm very curious to hear, <laughs> first of all, why personal training? And then how did you go from personal training over to what you're doing now? Okay. So, well, I am a, still a full-time personal trainer now. Um, I just do both in person. And I do a lot of virtual, especially with COVID. Um, I was a runner. I was a cross-country runner and a track athlete. It was distance runner back in high school and then get to college, um, took a kinesiology class by accident and then realized that you can just hang out at the gym um, in college and get a degree in that. And I thought that was really cool. So I switched over to kinesiology and I studied that. And that's where I kind of started falling in love with lifting. So I never really lifted in high school and I started lifting in college and just absolutely loved the way it made me feel the transformation I saw and all that. 
So I became a certified personal trainer. Um, and after I went to college at UMass Amherst, after studying kinesiology there, I got a job as a trainer at Equinox, which is a big gym chain all over big uh, cities in the U.S. And I was there for about a year and a half and then decided to leave that and go out on my own. And in 2017, I opened up my first gym right here in downtown Boston. And then in 2018, I opened up my second gym. And so I had a full book of clients. Most of them were just people that kind of worked in the financial, financial district or lived downtown or um, just kind of a whole group of people. And then I had one client in particular who was really into outdoor adventures and such. And he was like, all right, I'm going on this two week backpacking expedition in Arctic Alaska. And I need to prepare for this because you're walking over um, really unstable terrain, um, you know, well into the Arctic with 70 pounds on your back because you're supported. I think it was one drop by a heli or one drop by a bush plane over the, the course of two weeks. And that was the only resupply that you had. And Ooh. so I started training him for that and he had an awesome time and he absolutely loved it. And he said like, you know, man, if, if I, my ankles would have been completely toast if we didn't do the, the training that we specifically did for this. And I was like, that's really cool. Uh, so I started doing more of the training for like myself because I'm really into uh, hiking and, and trekking and such and found that it really made a huge difference in my ability to get up and down the mountains, both faster and with less injuries. And so in 2019, I started Backcountry Fitness and I've been kind of growing it since. Yeah, you're the per perfect person to talk to today because you straddle those two worlds of being in the city and then really understanding what it takes right. to get fit for backcountry adventures. How did you get into backcountry stuff coming from a, a running background and then like a corporate gym background? So I was always, I was a boy scout when I was growing up. I was always that nerdy kid that wanted to know what type of bird or what type of rock this was. So I was really into the outdoors. Um, but right after I graduated from high school, my best friend in high school and I went up to the whites and we spent a week in the whites and did absolutely everything wrong that you could do when you're camping and hiking in the whites and, you know, camped, put a, your tent on a ridge with high wind speeds that we shouldn't have been like wore the wrong shoes and carried the wrong stove and just had way too much stuff. And we probably should have gotten a lot more trouble than we actually did, but we ended up being fine. But I absolutely fell in love with actually hiking and camping then. So through college, um, you know, UMass is out in the middle of Massachusetts. There's not a ton of huge mountains, but Somewhere closer to the Berkshires, there's a lot of open space. So I did some um, more local hiking and camping uh, there. And then once I got in the last probably three or four years, I met my fiance about three and a half years ago and introduced her to hiking. And then we took up traveling to hiking, um, traveling to hike, I should say. So we've been able to travel all around the world to get to go all these really cool places. And that's when we're doing more and more of like the multi-day backpacking and trekking and um, just trying to see if we, you know, what we can do and where we can go that'll take us to just beautiful, gorgeous, but physically challenging places. Nice. So what are some of the places you've been to? So we've been to uh, Patagonia, which was amazing. That was probably our, our favorite. It's it's a horrible, like, way to get down there. Um, it's, it's really, really tough. Like we got stuck in Bogota, Colombia, and we got stuck in Santiago for a day. And, but it, it took four days to get down there, but totally worth the trip. So we did the W trek in Patagonia. Um, we've been to, we've been caving in Vietnam. We've been to Alaska, Iceland a couple times to go hiking in Iceland, the Azores, um, Banff National Park. Um, just this recently we were in Costa Rica and we did Corcovado National Park in Costa Rica, which is not super physically challenging unless you're not used to the heat, which living in the Northeast and coming from it in December, we were not. So it was 90 degrees with 100% humidity. And that was that was tough there. So physically, it wasn't bad. Mentally, it was like, this is this is challenging, but it's a gorgeous, gorgeous place. It's probably the place we've seen most animals out of anywhere we've ever been. Um and even our first ever trip together, we, after we were dating for a month, we went down to Tulum, Mexico after reading a like blogger who does trekking and hiking and hiked 20 miles along the beach in Tulum and camped in the jungle, uh, the side of the, the beach and then, and then hiked back the next day. So we kind of like, even from our very first like trip together, we kind of fell in love with all of that. What is it about personal fitness that's so attractive to you? That's a good question. I would say initially with with getting into personal training and getting into fitness, it was just 
kind of the way it made me feel about myself. I think that, you know, you build a confidence a lot when you not only looking good, but also just feeling good, just feeling like, wow, I'm able to, you know, achieve this or I can go into the gym and I, I feel amazing at the end of that gym session. And that gives you just so much self-confidence, so much just confidence in everything else that you're doing in life. And I think that really carries it along. It's like a mirror image story for me because I started weightlifting when I was in college. I had one night I was playing solitaire on my computer after studying, and I noticed I couldn't sit like this, like with my finger on my laptop, like using the mouse for like more than 20 seconds before my uh, shoulder was starting to ache. And I'm like, wow, I am really freaking weak. This is awful. The next day I went to the gym and I started weightlifting for the first time ever. There you go. There's the motivation was, solitaire. Oh, yeah, that uh, solitaire solves everything. I guess. Literally, that is the least active thing you could possibly do to realize that you're out of shape. <laughs> That's where he started at. His base was solitaire fitness. And then I will always there. remember that. My dorm room in college, it was like halfway through my first semester of my freshman year. I'd like never done weightlifting in my life. And I'm like, all right, you know, screw this. I'm going to start weightlifting. And like the soreness that I felt the first day after weightlifting, going to the gym, you know, being able to bench press 45 pounds, like, whoa, wow, right. I'm really doing this. Um, it was like, uh, it hurt, but it was such a good, fulfilling hurt, you know? And Right, absolutely. And that's when you get hooked. Because in reality, it makes everything else in life much better. You become much more efficient. You become much more, you're able to process things a lot faster. Like just being in shape and regular exercise in general, even if it's just walking every day, can help with everything else um, in an incredible amount. Well, I feel like I feel like this discussion of uh, incorporating training into your daily life fits into a fun little series of questions that we want to do before we get into some nitty gritty which I'm going to call it fact or fiction. Awesome. So first question, fact or fiction, you can hike your way into fitness on a through hike or a backpacking trip. I would say that's definitely a fact. Um, however, you carry with it the risk to rewards of showing up prepared versus showing up prepared. So, you know, there's been plenty of people who have showed up completely out of shape at, in Georgia at the beginning of the AT and they've made it to, to Maine and they just did it becoming fit over the trail. But I would say that's a that's a small percentage of the minority um, that's actually successful in doing that. Because when you show up unprepared, you're at a higher risk for injury. You're at a higher risk of just mentally falling out because you just, again, don't have that confidence that you're going to build when you're preparing and physically training for um, something like a, a through hike. And so, yeah, it's absolutely possible. But I would say it's – I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> it's not – um, yeah, if you're going to take something on as big as a through hike and, you know, you're going to be weighing to the gram, every single piece of equipment that you have, and you're going to be mapping out to the quarter mile, every place that you're going to stop over the next five months, um, you should probably also take care of your body as well as you prepare to show up for that. Mm. Okay. Next question. Fact or fiction training specificity matters. I would say it definitely matters. Um, once you hit a certain point. Right. So if your goal is just to be overall in shape, then training specificity matters less. Uh, if your goal is to be able to just be fit enough to walk up your local hill um, and have fun with that, then that's great. Then just general fitness is a good goal. But if your goal is to do something specific, like doing a three week trek at altitude, then or doing something that's going to cover thousands of meters uh, in elevation, then that you definitely need specificity because if you don't have the specificity there, your body's not adapted to that specific overload, uh, whether it be both cardiovascular or from muscular or just from the repeated motion over and over and over on your joints. If your joints aren't ready for that, if the stability muscles around those joints aren't ready for that, or just things aren't aligned, um, you're again, much more likely to get hurt. We know you're smart because you said the answer is it depends. <laughs> Yeah, everything always depends on life. It's, it's, it's never, never a definite yes or no. Okay, well, here's a definite yes or no, maybe. All right. Yes, no, maybe. Fact or fiction? I don't need to use straps on my trekking poles. And also, do you even need trekking poles? I use my trekking poles for all of my hikes, not just because it helps with performance, like actually be able to get the mountain faster and down faster, but because it's going to help take a lot of pressure off the anterior chain of which is basically the front of the legs, right? So if you think about it, as you're stepping downhill, 
you know, after you're, you're hiking downhill for 10 miles, what's going to hurt the most? It's going to be the quad. It's going to be the insertion of the quads in the knee, which is right above the knee. And the reason is when you're walking uphill, you think about stepping up onto a box. You place your foot up on the box and then you gradually push your body weight up to the top of the box, right? And the box should be a rock in this case. And that you're taking a nice loaded uh, concentric motion and you're pushing up. Your muscles are basically taking your weight and pushing it up. Now, when you're walking downhill or you're stepping off that box or the rock, you're all of a sudden slamming your body weight into the ground in what's called an eccentric, an extended position. And that is gonna be 10 times the amount of pressure on that muscle than when you were just gradually stepping up with your body weight. So you do that for 10 miles all straight downhill, you're all of a sudden pounding and pounding and pounding and pounding in that lengthened position on the quad. And that's why people have that horrible, horrible quad pain as they're going downhill. So trekking poles, not only can you reduce the amount of shock that you're having on that quad, but you're acting like a, a second anterior chain or a second knee that's taking that shock away from it so that you have, you're using the back of the legs. And instead of mostly the front of the legs, you're using really the trekking poles as a replacement for a lot of the front of the leg shock. Mm, that was great explanation. Wow. Very useful. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> can you explain to us how to actually use trekking poles? Like what's the technique? Uh, for anything specific or just for hiking in general? Just for hiking in general. Specifically, do I need to use my straps? Are they doing me any good? <laughs> I, I always use the straps. You use the straps by hooking it around and then around the thumb. Yeah. I would say the strap technique is is really, I mean, it's, if they look at cross-country skiers, they use the straps and, you know, they're really efficient with the way that they are moving with the poles. Most people who are hiking are not as efficient with using the poles. I would say the straps are great because your hands are going to get super sweaty and you're not going to want to grip that for that long. Um, and so I use the straps for that reason. And then when you're going downhill, you can put more pressure on an open palm, which is going to over time be a lot less on the grip strength than when you're just gripping the, the pole itself. Um, you know, some people will argue to take the straps off if you're going down a riskier area where if you fell, you get your arm stuck. And I can definitely appreciate that. Um, but I would say, you know, when you're going uphill, I usually shorten the pole a little bit. When I'm going downhill, I'll, I'll lengthen the pole by a few centimeters. Like I'll, I'll adjust the poles depending on what I'm doing for that day. And, but I, I, yeah, I would say their poles are definitely a must on my end. And then if I'm hiking with a friend who says, oh no, I don't use poles. I say, all right, we'll just try, try this extra pair I have today and then at the end they're like oh that was so much better that was that was that makes my knees uh, a lot happier at the end of the day how much do you think the poles help with like keeping or uh maybe even developing like shoulder and arm strength uh specific strength maybe a bit i would say like actual strength in terms of like oh my shoulders are now big and strong like no <laughs> that don't do very much but they can at the same time they can they can help with you know the more that you're doing it, the better you're going to get at actually using the poles. But I would say probably for stuff other than specifically using your poles, it's probably not going to develop that much unless you're really leaning into it. But I, I wouldn't see, I wouldn't see most people who are really climbing with their arms as they're hiking uphill. So this is funny because uh, that was one of my main motivations for using trekking poles on my <laughs> hike because I'm like, I do not want my arms turning into toothpicks over the next five months. Yeah, I would say you're better off just doing pull-ups at the end of the day than, than uh, worrying too much about putting pressure on the arms. Doing pull-ups or push-ups at the end of a 25-mile hike, now that's extra credit. Right. Yeah. Yeah, everyone thinks that they're going to do it, and then once they get into camp and they're they're fast asleep 10 minutes later in their sleeping bag, they, that goes out the window. Oh, God, yeah. There were yeah. younger guys I walked with at the start of the trail, and they're like, every day I'm going to do 50 push-ups when I get into camp, and then 50 push-ups when I leave camp. And I'm like, yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, that'll last five days. Five My days sweet next. summer child. <laughs> 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 well, I think that could be a good framework then to approach like some of the more nitty gritty stuff that we want to get into now. So maybe start with just hitting on the basic service. At the time we're having this conversation, we're starting to get into uh, the shoulder season, late winter, early spring. It's cold, it's icy, you got variable conditions, but the big thing is hiking season's coming up. So I guess the first thing would be, how can people start gearing up for hiking season in terms of physical and mental shape? And we're talking just in general or specific to that shoulder season, that like mud and mud and ice season. What we were thinking is people are starting to think about those 
through hikes they might be going on in a couple months or their summer adventures, they're planning on a trip out west or a big hike in the White Mountains, whatever the case may be, how can they start preparing now? So I always start off clients with making sure that their their stability and their mobility are set. Right. So if you try to build a house on top of a really crappy foundation, the house is not going to last very long. So you want to make sure that not only your core stability, but your stability around all your joints. So that would be like, are you really good at planks? Or if you know what a dead bug is, it's lying on your back and then like maybe squeezing a, a giant exercise ball. And are you feeling that in the core? Or are you feeling that in the lower back? Are you feeling lower back pain all day uh, when you're at work or sitting in a chair? Because if that's something that you are experiencing, you probably need to focus a bit there before you start doing your, you know, bench presses and transverse step ups and all the other fancy stuff that you can do in a program. Um, with that being said, you also need to make sure that everything's lined up properly. And this is probably one of the things I see the most with people is that they start getting into, you know, an exercise routine and then they say, Oh, I hurt my knee. And then you, you kind of look at them and their alignment. And it's not actually their, their knee. That's a problem. It's that they have, their hips are all tilted out of place, especially with people who are sitting down all day, um, which is most people uh, for work. They're sitting down all day. Their hips are tilted into this called anterior tilt, and they have what we call lower cross syndrome. So everything's super tight and pulled out of place. And then that causes everything else, all the other joints in that area to kind of get out of whack. Because if the hips are supposed to move and they can't move and the knee is supposed to be stable, the hips are going to make the knee move more than it wants to. And then the knee is what's going to hurt. Right. So making sure that everything is is lined up properly, um, everything is is stable. And then from there, building up with both the strength work, the more advanced strength work. And then, of course, the cardio, um, because cardiovascular conditioning is going to be probably primary for most people when it comes to any type of long distance hiking or trekking or whatever they might be taking up. Mm. Can you elaborate a little bit on core strength? Because I actually, you know, I do a ton of core strength and weight and strength training, et cetera. But my hips are always going out of alignment, probably from sitting too much. So I'm actually going to stand up now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Do you have any tips for people who suffer from from that weak core and or hip issues? Yeah. So I'll, I'll kind of take it from not only a course spot, but like you said, that, that hip alignment spot. So because people are sitting all day, their core becomes disengaged, your core becomes weak, and then your quads and your hip flexors become really tight because they're in this shortened position all day. Right. So if you think about your hips as a bowl and you take your hands, put them on your hips as a bowl, the front of that bowl is being pulled down because your quads are super tight and your core, which is supposed to be pulling up on the front of that bowl, is not right. And then you think about your the back of the bowl where your thumbs are at. Your uh, lower back is going to be uh, super tight, and that's pulling up because you're in seated position all day. And then your hamstrings and your glutes are super weak, so that's supposed to be counterbalancing that lower back, and that's allowing it to raise up. So you end up with that bowl tilted forward, right? Mm-hmm. And that's called the anterior tilt, or it's called lower cross syndrome. And it's again super super common. It's probably I see it more so than I don't with with most people that I work with. Um, and so to fix that, and there, again, that causes lower back pain, it causes hip pain, it causes knee pain, it causes basically all the pains that people see. Um, to fix that, we need to strengthen the core. So that's going to pull up on the front of the, of the bowl. Uh, we need to f- stretch out the hip flexors. Um, and then we need to strengthen the glutes and the hamstrings, uh, which are on the, in the back to pull down that bowl. Um, and most people are quad dominant, especially runners, they're really weak in the hamstrings, their glutes. They're really good at pushing forward with their quads. People that are traveling uphill, like hikers, same thing. You're really strong at pushing with the quads, but you don't really engage your glutes or your hamstrings that much because you're not going, you're not taking big enough steps um, or not specifically because you're doing it wrong just because of the, the, the motion itself. So strengthening the core and then strengthening the glutes and the hamstrings and then stretching out the hip flexors uh, while still keeping them strong is important. Now, when I say core strength, a lot of people, when they think core strength, they just think sit-ups and leg raises and crunches and all that kind of stuff, which is not the main function of the core. If you think about what's the job of the core, it's to make sure everything else doesn't fall apart, right? Because if you didn't have a strong core, all of a sudden, you just collapse whenever you try to pick something up. So the main function of the core is stability to keep yourself stable. So you should be really, really good at being really stable before you start doing flexion, extension, rotation, all that other kind of stuff. Um, And then to get into it a little bit more, when I say be stable, 
you can be stable in the transverse plane, the sagittal plane, and the frontal plane. So it's three different planes. So that's like doing a plank, a side plank, and a payoff hold, which is basically you put your hands out and you either take a cable or someone pushes you to the side and you don't let that you don't let that move. Um, and so that stability there in all three planes is the most important thing. So once a client is really good at all those and they don't feel in the lower back, they feel in their core, they're engaged, then I start doing, all right, now we can do some flexion extension sit-ups and, and such. But I very rarely will have a client do any type of sit-up or crunch or leg raise or anything like that until they have a really solid foundation uh, in that core. Yeah, literally you talking about this, it made me stand up as well, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> do you have that? You feel the the hip tilt. You feel the I hip do. Tilt yeah. yeah, it's the same yeah. thing. I feel the hip tilting forward, and uh, you know, I hear more times where I start to work with my uh, abs, and yeah, I start to take it more in the lower back than anything else. Right. And then if you squeeze the if, so the other thing too, working on that what's called the posterior chain or the back of the legs, using your butt and your hamstrings. So we need to really focus on strengthening that. So if you know what glute bridges are, which you're lying on your back put your feet on the ground, you're going to roll your hips off, squeeze your butt, and then come back down. Those are going to be another super um, great basic exercise that you can do to start strengthening the, the back of the legs to, again, balance everything out. Because the core and the glutes, hamstrings, they work together. Um, they're synergistic muscles. So when you squeeze one and the other, it kind of turns off the lower back and the, um, the hip flexors at the same time. So if you feel something in your lower back while you're doing an exercise, Oftentimes, if you squeeze your core, like imagine someone's going to come over and punch you in the stomach, really brace that stomach, and then you squeeze your butt at the same time, oftentimes that will disengage that lower back because you're taking the pressure onto those muscles instead of the lower back. So then I want to think about what we go once we have this core foundation, literally uh, this core foundation, and then we want to actually expand from that. Um, where would we be going Like, if we were going to be going into a typical uh, hiking training regimen like would there be particular muscle groups besides your abs that a person should start focusing on and like what would be the ways that we work these muscle groups right so the again the hamstrings and the glutes are probably going to be the one of the most important next movements uh, because most people are quad dominant so we need to balance out all those and you know all those um those imbalances between the front of the legs and the back of the legs so something that's going to be really focused on like maybe deadlifts, although deadlifts can be a pretty advanced exercise, so maybe more so hamstring curls with a TRX or sliders on the ground, and then those glute bridges that we just talked about, uh, and then doing single leg work um, pretty quickly into the program to make, to make sure that there's no imbalances between one side of the body and the other. So it might be a single leg sit to stand, so you sit down onto the bench with one leg and then you stand up with one leg or you put one foot out and you use that as kind of like a kickstand or a support to stand up. Um, and then single leg loop bridges to, again, focusing on is one side a lot stronger than the other because you might not feel it now, but if you're going to go spend three weeks trekking and then all of a sudden after a week your hips are all wonky, it could be because you're taking 20,000 steps a day and each of the, one of those steps it's, it's slightly off. And that's just going to compound over and over and over and over. And then you realize when it's too late that you probably should have addressed this issue of some kind of imbalance. And now you have massive hip pain that won't let you go on. So it's that correction or understanding and then correcting those imbalances between one side of the body and the other. Interesting. And yeah, you got to it a little bit at the beginning. And this is what I'm curious about to develop like strength work or your muscles. Um, once you have a balance in both your left leg and right leg, do you think it's better to be doing like large dynamic exercises that target a whole bunch of muscle groups like deadlifts, barbell squats, clean and jerks, as opposed to doing like isolated exercises with like leg curls, uh, bicep curls, calf raises? Like which one do you think is better or do you think it's like they each have their own value? I would say they definitely each have their own value. Um, I would say something like a deadlift and a squat are like big, really good um, bread and butter exercises, like the base of a lot of the foundation of a lot of programs. Um, and when it comes to though, because for example, with the isolation exercises that you just named there, like the single leg hamstring curl or a bicep curl, I would have you do maybe isolated movements, but they're more three-dimensional isolated movements, right? So maybe like a pistol squat or a pistol squat holding on to a TRX. That's where you hold on to something in front of you just to stabilize. And then you're squat down on one leg and come back up. Because in that way, you're not just like, oh, I'm just going to hit the hamstring muscle. It's more like I'm training this movement, 
right? So I think of when I'm developing a program, I think less about like, all right, what's the actual muscle that we're going to do, like, you know, bicep or back, and more about what's the movement we're going to do, like a horizontal pull, right? Because that also allows you to balance out your movements. Because a lot of people, they go to the gym, you think, all right, I'm going to do a bunch of push-ups and a bench press, I'm going to do a squat and I'm going to do a, a crunch. And those are all anterior push exercises, right? Instead of doing any stability or pull exercises. So that, again, the balance there is going to be super important. But to go back to like the, the overall, which exercises are best, typically I'll, I'll have in a program a good amount of like those big compound um, exercises like the squat and the deadlift. And then I have a lot of the also kind of isolation, but like ice, single side exercises, like the single leg squat um, or a side plank with a leg raise or something that's just focusing on one side of the body at a time. For someone who's just getting into maybe it's doing the core strength, looking at uh, muscle imbalances, or even do implementing some of these exercises that you were talking about, if we're going from couch to starting, how right. often should we be trying to do this? For how long, how, you know, maybe a number of exercises, what's realistic? My, my first question whenever someone asks me that is what's realistic to you, right? Because I could say a number, I could say, oh, four days a week. And then someone says, oh, that's great. And then they can't commit to four days a week. They can only commit to one day a week, right? A one day a week is better than zero days a week. Two days a week is better than zero one day a week. It, it's, I would say once you get up to four or five days a week, that's pretty sufficient for most people. I, I was just going to clarify, is that for just strength training or are we talking like overall training? So typically... Typically two to four, sometimes five days of cardiovascular training, and then between one, but usually two to four days of strength training. Great. Thank you. So that might be, you could do two days of cardio and two days of strength as a beginner. And that's a really, really good program right there. And the strength would be two full body, you know, core stability and single leg work. Uh, focused strength movements and then the other two days of cardios might might be hiking it might be walking on the treadmill might go be for a walk in your in your neighborhood whatever basically you can do at that time uh, and that's the other thing i'm a big proponent of is if someone says all right i i can only do this i'm like that's great like whatever you can have whatever you have available uh it doesn't necessarily have to be you have to go for a hike every single weekend because i can't do that i know a lot of most people that live in the city can't do that so you know, we try to make work whatever we can with that person's availability, both from a time perspective and from a location perspective. And actually, I want to go back now to each of these one by one, like uh, the cardio and then going to strength training. So like starting with the cardio, is there a type of cardio training that you think is best, like running versus swimming versus, you know, high interval training or boxing or something like that? It, it depends what you're training for. So if you're training to hike, the best type of cardio is hiking. If you're training to swim, the best type of cardio is swimming, right? So it's it's very specific on that. When it comes to people who are going to be hiking, but they can't necessarily hike all the time, the best one, again, try not to be too picky, but the best one would probably be something that's going to load those um, joints in a similar way. So it's going to be running. It could be walking on a treadmill. It could be walking outside with a ruck or with a backpack. Um, those are probably the best ones. And then secondary to that would be swimming and cycling because while you're still active and you're still making your heart work, you're not loading the muscles and the joints in that same way. So it's not as specific. So cool. I would say for, for most people who I'm working with, I, I, who are doing trekking, mountaineering, um, hiking, they're going to be doing mostly stair stair master or treadmill if they're indoors or they're going to be hiking outdoors or hiking their neighborhood and then cross training with swimming and cycling and that's more of a fun thing as a secondary thing not as a major part of the program what type of target heart rate should you be aiming for should you be putting yourself in like the fat burning range or should it be like a cardio range or should you have like intervals what's the target heart rate you should be shooting for so with 90 percent of people it's going to be in that lower zone zone one two maybe peaking into to zone three so and when i say zone one two three four five which was typically we go by five zones zone five is like you are at your max, absolutely burnt out, going as hard as you can, where zone one is like you're on a nice brisk walk, um, if you think of it from there. So most people haven't really developed their base cardiovascular endurance well enough to be pushing themselves into zone four and zone five. And when they do push themselves into zone four, zone five, they are actually 
um, devaluing their ability to, to stay in that zone one and two. Um, and so they're actually hurting their ability to go for a longer period of time and by doing that super high intensity training. Hikers, trekkers, mountaineers, outdoor athletes in general aren't doing a lot of explosive movement. Um, they're doing a lot more of that sustained heart rate. Like think about going up for going up a hill for an hour straight. Your heart rate's probably sitting at like zone two, maybe zone three. If you were sitting in zone five the whole time, you'd be dead. Um, and or there'd be something going on that's wrong. And if you're sitting in zone one the whole time, then that's terrific. Then you're just super fit. So um, you're is sitting in that zone two or three. So a lot of time we like to mimic that type of training or that type of experience by staying in zone two, zone three, in that distance running, distance walking, you're breathing. You can have maybe a conversation or a slight conversation, but you can't, you can at least get words out. It's not, I'm running next to you and you can't talk to me. That would be going too hard for most people. So can you explain why doing maybe a lot of high intensity interval training would be detrimental? Like on a physical level, is it something to do with fast twitch versus slow twitch muscle fibers and you're converting too many over. I'm just curious kind of the physiology. I'm really curious about this too, because I just started getting into combat sports. Like I started doing MMA and boxing um, to try and supplement like the work that I'm doing for hiking in the Wasatch this year. And I'm maybe wondering if I'm hurting my cause by doing that. (laughs) You're you're probably not hurting it too, too badly. I wouldn't be too concerned about that. Um, It has more so less so to do with the fast switch, slow switch fibers and more so to do with your energy systems. It's more so how your body processes uh, creatine phosphate or glucose when like very quick, um, uh, like, uh, outputs versus how, what they're doing in a long term. So it's aerobic versus anaerobic. Right. So think about you go really, really hard. Your body is going to be using less oxygen. So it, it because it can't absorb that much oxygen because you're going so quickly. Uh, think of it. You're going to be in an anaerobic state versus an aerobic state, which is your body is is using that oxygen. So if you're spending too much time in an anaerobic state, you're going to get better at being in an anaerobic state. But it will actually hinder your ability to keep building up your ability to be in an aerobic state, if that makes sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. If you don't have a really good aerobic base, you shouldn't focus on the anaerobic stuff, which you're probably, in this case, not going to be doing a ton of anyway. You should be focusing on, all right, building up a really solid, your body's ability to uh, be really efficient in that aerobic state and not so much in that anaerobic state. Awesome. Thank you. I have one more question about uh, cardio. Is there a minimum amount of time that people need to actually elevate their heart rate to see a benefit a benefit with health overall or with a benefit with with any of this stuff i'm just thinking about you know that busy person in the city they're they're trying to get fit for hiking season they have limited time what's the minimum amount of time that they need to go for a run or a brisk walk or whatever that's a good question i would say for hiking it's even season itself um Obviously, I'm going to say as, as much time as you can. If you're if you're struggling to get a day or two in, um, ideally, you can get, let's say, two days a week of 45 minutes, 50 minutes, 60 minutes uh, plus. If, you know, ideally, I'd like to see two, three, four days a week. If you can only do one day a week, you, that's probably not going to be enough. Um, ideally, let's say two to three days of at least half an hour, if not 45 minutes plus throughout the week. And I would say most of my clients who are on the lower end of cardiovascular training, I have them doing three days a week and pushing them to really find the time to find that three days a week. What's better two days at, for a longer duration or four days for a shorter duration? I would say, and what's your end goal? What's your end goal? You know, to be able to go do that backpacking trip that you really want to go do this summer like a hundred mile week-long backpacking trip how active are you otherwise this is someone who is not fit not active trying to you know start getting in shape for for that trip i would say more than likely the the second option where you're doing four days of shorter ones the reason being one the people who if you go out and you do really long like hikes or or um or walks or whatever it might be twice a week, but then you're not moving at all for the rest of the week. You're really, really being de- it's hugely detrimental to your overall um, progress by sitting around for the rest of the day. So I'd rather see you just be more active and maybe cut down your total time. And the other reason too is because overtraining is a serious issue. 
So I've had people who have trained for long, uh, long distance hikes who have like gone for 15 mile runs on the weekend and then barely moved because they'd have a super busy job during the week and they usually end up getting hurt. So I would say because of the lack of movement throughout the week, probably the four times a week, if you were to say that this person was, you had a very active job and were moving around a bunch and like they were already doing, let's say 10,000 steps plus a day, which is what a lot of people like to go off of, then maybe the twice a week would be just fine. How how many miles is 10,000 steps roughly? Typically about five. Wow. Because okay. the average the average mile for again it's gonna be different for someone who's five foot one versus six foot two uh, because of the step length. But typically it's about two thousand steps a mile. So now with the cardio, uh, now I want to supplement that with uh, strength training. So I guess the main thing was strength training. Again, let's assume hiking, and we're looking to build you know glutes, uh, hamstring muscles, and so on. What should the emphasis be as opposed to like set counts or rep counts? What's our target? That's a good question. So I would say it's going to be a mix throughout the entire week. And I like to look at programs, not just from what you did today, but what are you doing for the entire week? Right. So the entire week, you're going to do a bit of strength training in the six to eight rep range just to build that really good base strength. I typically don't have any athletes doing sets of three or doing max reps because that's just, their goal isn't just to build like the heaviest bench press that they can. It's really, So typically it's more in the six to eight range on the heavier side. And then it might be ranges of 15, 20 to 30 reps on the other side to build up more of that muscular endurance. And oftentimes those exercises are paired then with other exercises that are mimicking that constantly using that muscle in a lower um, weight, higher rep uh, situation that you would when you're out hiking with a you know 50 pound pack on. So it's going to be, I'd say, leaning towards higher rep, um, but not being scared of, of doing heavier weight. I think a lot of people tended to do just, you know, four sets of 20 with certain exercises. And that's great for the four sets of 20, but you're not going to get much stronger unless you have a little bit of that base strength as well. Unless you also throw in that three or four sets of eight, three or four sets of six on different exercises to get that, that overall compound movement built up so you can do longer, um, higher rep movements later kind of looking at combining these two things, the, the aerobic and the strength, what is the ideal week look like? Are you, do you want to do aerobic and strength work on the same day and then take a day off? Do you want to, you know, alternate? What's, what's best? So let's say in, in this case, let's say that you're going to be strength training uh, three times a week and then you'll be doing aerobic like three times a week as well. Right. So that's a six times total. You might do if you want to do a double on one day, you might do your your the least amount of exercises that you're going to do for one of your strength movements. Let's say you have a pure strength day. You're just doing like heavier movements and then you go to single leg movements and you're doing a lot of exercises. And then you have one day that's a little less and maybe you combine your cardio with that day. And then I like to, in, in my training, do what's called sustained push training or SPT. And it's basically you're taking a, a number of strength movements. Usually, in this case, it's be lower body and core movements. And you s- string them all together. And just like with a CrossFit wad, you're in a CrossFit wad, you're doing maybe a 15-minute high intensity, like do this, do that, do this, do that. Think of it like that, but kind of taper down so your heart rate is in more so that zone two, maybe zone three. And you're doing high rep not rushed, but also not with any breaks, just moving from one station to the next. And that's a great way to incorporate both your strength and your cardiovascular endurance in one. And it mimics a lot of what you're going to be seeing toward during like the cruxes of your, of your hiking. Um, so, you know, you're pushing hard, you're, you're moving in all these different directions because you're doing some scrambling, some climbing, some stepping laterally, stepping in a transverse plane, all these different things at once um, in a, let's say a 45 minute push that's kind of what this type of training mimics, right? So in that week there, I might say, all right, you do a strength day by itself, then you do some cardio, then you do a, or like a, a, let's say a shorter cardio day, then you do another shorter cardio day with your, your shorter strength movement, and then you take a day off, and then you do the big sustained push training by itself, and then you take a day off, and then you do your longest cardio. Um, I don't know if that added up to three and four, but let's just pretend it did. Um, for the actual <laughs> taste, but, um, but, you know, you want to balance it out. And if you are going to do strength training and cardio on the same day to get the benefit of both, ideally, you don't do them back to back. 
Um, mm. the, if you leave, uh, science says six hours or more is ideal between the two of them. If you are going to do them back to back, I like to have people do strength and then cardio because imagine you go run for an hour or you go do whatever you might do for an hour and then you come in and you're supposed to be really, really focused on this strength work that requires a lot of focus and uh, attention and, and energy to get it done right you're more likely to screw that up than you are to do the exercises and then go for a run and just be a little tired on your run. Mm. That makes sense. Your, your risk of injury, your risk of making some big mistakes that's going to lead to some either exercise being worthless or hurting yourself itself um, is a lot higher if you run and then you do strength training versus strength training and then run or cardio. Mm. Interesting. And, and that's something, I mean, old school thinking is do you do your run and then you come in and then you lift but it, like, that's what everyone did in high school when you had, you know, practice. And then afterwards, the coach says, go, go hit the gym. But by the time you hit the gym, you're exhausted and all your lifts are not going to be as strong and you're more likely to screw something up. What are pitfalls that you see in people's build up to hiking season? Like what mistakes do you see people make? The biggest issues I see is well, the first one would be doing too much too soon. Right. So it's the building up and then having an overuse injury. And not that's oftentimes shin splints. It's knee pain. Sometimes it's lower back pain. Sometimes it's throwing a joint out um, and then doing stuff wrong, which is obviously a very common thing that you'll see uh, with a lot of people like deadlifting wrong and not learning how to deadlift first or doing uh, a push up wrong and then starting to feel pain up in your neck or in your shoulder blade. Uh, so that's a, a really a common thing there. The other one would be saying like, all right, my knee pain, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but like if you have knee pain and then you're like, all right, I, I should just do stuff around my knee, but naturally, actually it's your ankle or your hips that's causing the issue that you just then feel in the knee. That's a very common thing as well. So someone will come up and say, all right, you know, I have the pain here. And then you have to actually figure out, is it because you have a bad knee, which usually it's not, it's actually because you have some kind of imbalance in one of the other joints around the knee. Or weak hips. Yeah. Weak yes, hips. exactly. Weak, weak hips is a, because usually it's, it's related to the, the knee, the lower back and the hips because the knee is supposed to move just like this. It's not supposed to be moving all around. The hips are a ball and socket joint. So they're supposed to be like this. And then the lower back is supposed to be stable, not twisting all over the place. But if one is screwed up, the other ones are going to do the opposite of what they're supposed to. And then that's what, that's what the problem is. So Weak hips can lead to, if you don't strengthen the hips, then you have a problem in your knee or a problem in your lower back. So the, the takeaway for me from that is if you are experiencing something like knee pain, it's probably worth going and working with someone like you because you might not be able to self-diagnose why that right. issue is happening. And, and I've certainly learned from my own experience, as I'm sure both of you have, that it, it will go away, but then it's going to pop up again if you don't. <laughs> put in the work you know ignoring yeah, it is not opportune time the yeah these uh potential uh pitfalls that you have with like calf issues hip issues and stuff how important is things like gear helping in preventing these types of pitfalls like you know having your backpack seated right or like having the right pair of shoes like what gear tips might you have for us to help prevent some of these things yeah, with with the backpack, it's it's definitely the where is it loaded, right? So loading the, the backpack on the hips, have, making sure that it's packed properly with all the weight up against the back instead of just hanging off the front of the backpack, um, making sure that everything's loaded. People will feel, you know, you start to feel pain up in the neck because you don't have something with a really strong enough strap that's allowing to sit right on the hip bones to let that carry all the weights. Um, with shoes, oftentimes people, people have different opinions on orthotics and what type of shoes. A lot of times people will ask, you know, what's the best type of, of shoe for my foot? And I say, it's whatever shoe is going to fit you the best, right? Like I love, um, Keens, I love Solomon's, but neither of those fit my feet. So it's, it's whatever shoe is going to fit you best is really going to be the best type, uh, of shoe. And same thing with orthotics is that some orthotics work for some people, some don't with others. It provides a bit of support to that arch, which for, for some people with flat feet can really make a big difference, um, which is terrific. But it's really just kind of finding what works best for you and not necessarily just going by whatever backpacker.com has rated as the absolute highest uh, shoe that you can for 2020, because it could be an amazing shoe. It just doesn't work for you. What's your opinion on like zero drop shoes like ultras? So the idea is if we, if we look back to where that all started with like the, the born to run book. Um, yeah. So I actually worked at a running store 
um, here in Boston when that first came out. And I had all these people coming in saying, I read Board in the Run. I want to get the barefoot shoes, which usually meant the Vibram Five Fingers or it meant one of like the Nike Freeze. And oftentimes, 75% of them would show up two weeks later saying, you know, I hurt myself because I was running in your stupid shoes. So I want my money back. And it typically, <laughs> and you think about it with Board in the Run, the average, the, the it talks about how our ancestors ran and were ran without shoes, but our ancestors were five foot one and weighed 80 pounds and ran on grass from the time they were born until the time they died. And they were just built a lot differently than the average American who is not, who is the complete opposite of all of that. So I would say that the amount of stress that you're putting on your feet for most people, zero drop with zero cushion shoes are not great. Um, you have the other zero drop, like, um, the Hoka's that are really high cushion zero drop shoes, which can be great. I would just say you need to really ease your way into it. So whenever somebody says, all right, I'm going to start trying a zero drop shoe. I say, all right, you could try maybe a four millimeter drop shoe first or a, an eight millimeter drop shoe instead of like the standard 12 and build your way down. Or you do like a short run in the zero drop and then do your long run in the, in the normal drop. And then you switch back and forth and build that up over time because people's calves are also usually shorter than than they think they are. So you go to a zero drop shoe, all of a sudden your calf height drops 12 millimeters and you start straining your calf. Uh, the other thing too is, is properly running. So running with your foot strike underneath you, where most of us, since we have big, big, thick, clunky shoes, we're landing on our heels uh, more so than we're landing on our midfoot. And if you don't change that stride when you switch to a zero drop shoe, it's not going to be a fun time. So conversely, for those of us with calf issues, would a, would a higher drop shoe be a good idea then? It could potentially. It would depend. It's, it's going to be a person-to-person factor. It's going to depend on uh, a lot more of like your mechanics and where you're running, what you're running on, what your daily mileage is, how much you're bumping it up, all of that, and less on just like the shoe, shoe of choice. It's going to be a lot with like hiking shoes as well is that there's no perfect shoe. It's really so what's going to match everything, your foot shape, the way that you walk, uh, the amount of mileage you'll be putting on, all of that. Do you have any tips on training your mind? <laughs> so I like to say uh, it's best to become, I'm sure someone, I'm stealing this quote from somebody, but become comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? It's in, which is something that, the physical training in a gym can actually really benefit from that. You can carry over into the mountains is that when you're doing something like the sustained push training that we're talking about, where you're mixing things in, you're constantly moving with strength and with high reps for 45 minutes. That's really tough mentally. That's tough to keep pushing through because you just want to stop and look at your phone for the next five minutes and not actually continue with that workout. But that's something where you want to find that zone where you're, all right, I'm feeling uncomfortable. And I'm okay with feeling uncomfortable and I'm just going to continue to be uncomfortable uh, throughout this because I know I can control myself or, you know, I know I can control this uncomfortability. It's not like I feel uncomfortable and I've lost control. It's like, you know, I'm in a place that's just past my comfort zone, but I'm not in any danger. I'm not going to hurt myself. And I think that mentality is really crucial when it's carrying over to, to, to being out in the, in the mountains, because you might be at a point where you know that you're on the line, you can keep yourself safe. You're going to be okay, but you're not really necessarily your body, your mind isn't happy with where you're at. And it's a big benefit to experience that on a regular basis and build up that tolerance versus just get out in the woods and experience for the first time and just be scared as scared as all hell. Mm. Really empathize with that. There's this book I'm reading right now called There you uh, go. Deliberate yeah. Discomfort. Deliberate Discomfort. It's a book uh Jason B. A. Van Camp. It basically talks about like how the reason why you have so many US special operations forces who are like so successful when they get out of the military is because they've been taught to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And if you're willing to run towards things that are difficult, you're going to be able to handle anything that's thrown at you and you're going to be successful because of it, whether it's, you know, a physical challenge or a financial challenge or anything like that. And I think a lot of hikers experience that anyway, because you know, you don't have to go hike a mountain when it's 20 degrees out and it's snowing. Like there's no, there's no necessary reason to do that. It's we do it for fun. So you're already accepting a, a bit of that, uh, but continuing, continuing to build your base and, uh, a lot of people that I know, and I've done some Wim, Wim Hof stuff, which if, if you guys know Wim Hof, he's 
big into breathing and controlling your breathing and then cold exposure along with that. And that's just because you're putting yourself, your body outside of that comfort zone um, and teaching it to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. So that's a, a point there. So are you advocating that we start taking cold showers? <laughs> I, was, I would say I, I take cold showers. I actually enjoy cold showers because, again, it's the challenge in you. It's that, all right, I'm going to push myself a little bit more. I'm going to take it for a minute and a half or two minutes or three minutes. Or uh, we just bought a house and I told my fiance the first thing I want is an ice bucket in the backyard because I want to be able to, I want to be able to wake up in the morning and meditate and jump in the ice bucket. Um, and again, that's, it's, you, some people, there's a lot of studies that show that there are, are good physical um, uh, rewards to doing that kind of stuff. There's some people that are like, yeah, I don't really know about how much benefit you're actually going to get from it. It's really more so mental. And if you, if you can build up that confidence in yourself that you can be in an uncomfortable situation and stay there, that's right there what the whole the whole benefit of training is all about oh my god ice baths are the freaking best <laughs> they're the best thing after a long run abby you do ice baths all the time i'm sure no, I don't. <laughs> actually i really don't like them like after after every time i've done a long run like 16 miles or more yeah like hop in the ice bath for five minutes and it sucks usually hide a beer in there to make it a little bit easier but then it's like <laughs> An hour later, it's just like, oh, this feels so much better. Yeah, I mean, and also I feel like the takeaway with all of these techniques, whether it's in the gym and you're pushing yourself in the ice bath, the cold shower, it's about finding a controlled environment where you're, you know you're going to be safe and then making that conscious decision, okay, I'm going to push myself out of my comfort zone today so that when you do get to that really hard part of the hike where you might not feel like you have as much control, you know how to handle that situation. That's exactly it. Billy, how can you train for altitude? Is there a way you can do it without having to go to altitude? So like a person in Boston who wants to climb a 14er in Colorado. So it's interesting because I'm, I'm not going to say yes to that question um, because I think that high altitude affects everybody in different ways. You can have people who are super fit. And I've talked to guys that have done um, like guided on Denali who have said that some of the fittest people that have shown up to work with them have just absolutely suffered in the high altitude. Um, and they just haven't been able to, 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 uh, adjust to it. So I would say that, you know, the altitude training mask you see people wear, if it's an actual altitude training mask hooked up to something that's going to regulate the amount of oxygen in the air, that's great. If it's just a mask that makes you not breathe as much total air, it doesn't actually do much from an altitude perspective. You just have a hard time breathing. So, so you're saying running with a COVID mask doesn't help. Running with a COVID mask, as much as I wish that, that helped, does not help with altitude training, no. So maybe your best bet then is to try, if possible, take that extra week or two off from work so that you can acclimate wherever you're yeah. going. I would say I would say the best bet is show up as ready as you can in all other ways and uh, make sure you acclimate properly. And if you're with a guide, listen to your guide on acclimation and don't just like show up and say, like I had one client who flew to Peru and then decided to do one of the highest peaks in Peru the day after that he flew in. And he said he was he was up there with like he was being guided with a 60 year old woman. And this this client is in his early 30s. And the 60 year old woman who had been there for a couple of weeks just blew right on by him. And he could barely take a step. And he got to the top and the guide had to almost carry him back down um, because wow. he was at such high altitude. And he, so it's not in that case, it's, it's really just doing what you should in properly adjusting. And knowing your body. And, you know, if you've been at high altitude before, you've had high altitude sickness or any type of, um, it, you know, uh, hopefully not an edema or something like that, then knowing that you have to take a longer period of time to adjust to it than maybe the average person does. This mindset of having to acclimate is probably applicable to extreme humidity, extreme cold, like all of these extremes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and again, it's, it's the, it goes, goes back into the being comfortable with being uncomfortable. So if you can do stuff that's going to push you outside the comfort zones, you'll get to the point where, you know, humidity, you can, you know, humidity is different because it's really just making sure that you're not pushing too much and you're, um, you're hydrating correctly at the right times, but that's just really being uncomfortable with being, or being comfortable with being uncomfortable in that case. Uh, and, but yeah, with anything, you need to make sure that you're adjusting to your environment and you're doing it correctly. You're not pushing yourself too much. 
Awesome. Well, we've, we've taken up a lot of your time here. So unless Shanti, unless you have any more training questions. Um, I don't think I have any more Chad questions. So okay. <laughs> Shanti and I will talk about after this about how he's screwing up all of his hiking training with his explosive movements. <laughs> well, here's the thing then uh, for you, Billy. Um, I mean, you've been able to give us so much good advice uh, to us today. We really appreciate that. Um, but you also have a lot of resources available for people uh, to be able to get more uh, information from you. How can people find that? So backcountryfitness.com is the website. And then I'm on Instagram at backcountryfitness. Um, and with on backcountryfitness.com, I have programs, everything ranging from just free basic programs. I have programs that are a little bit more specified. And, you know, if you're looking for four times a week on um, and you're an intermediate with a full access to a gym and you're training for mountaineering, that's a program. And then there's different ones varying there. Uh, and then I also work with clients one-on-one uh, -on -one, and that's going to be monthly or by monthly zoom calls where we talk a little bit more depth about, you know, doing uh, screenings on your movements and making sure that, you know, we kind of dive really in depth on a lot of the stuff we talked about today about alignments, course ability, and then building out a really custom program um, to get you to whatever goals you're training for. It's really maybe the one of the small silver linings of this time is that now people can work with you regardless of where they are. Yes. It's, and the hardest thing is really just the time difference. It's like trying to balance someone in Europe and jump on a call with somebody. But, but it's been amazing to get to meet from people from all over the world and all over the United States. Um, it's just been uh, terrific that we have this technology. So um, and it's just I love working with people and hearing their goals and hearing what they've done in the past and watching them achieve such crazy things that I'm like, all right, now I want to sign up for that hike or I want to sign up for that mountain. So it, it's just a lot of fun doing what I do. I, I just wanted to quickly, I saw on your website that you have a free six week outdoor program. And I was just, that seems like maybe a good way to a good introduction to your work. Can you explain to us really quickly what that is? Yeah. So that's just, that's a, um, so I have a backcountry fitness app. So that links directly to the app. So the app is cool because the delivery of the program is you have your own profile within the app and then you can see not only the exercises, but I filmed all the exercises. So I own a couple of gyms in Boston. And so I filmed all of my, all of the exercises in Boston. So I've got a little over 600 exercises all in the app that I film myself. So when you check out the, the exercise of the day, it's me explaining it, not just some random link on YouTube. And then um, you'll be able to see the recommended sets and the weight and the reps, as well as what you've done in the past. So you'll be able to see, all right, I, was able to uh, do a lunge with 20 pounds this week. And last week I did 15 for eight reps. And this week I'm doing 20 for 10 reps or whatever it might be built into there. And then you can also track your heart rate. You can track your um, your nutrition in there. You can link it with MyFitnessPal. So there's a lot of cool options with the Back Country Fitness app. So if you sign up for that, you can you know check out that basic outdoor athlete program. It's just kind of a general program. And then from there, that's where all the other programs are as well. So you can sign up for the, you know, three-day um, intermediate no gym program for uh, hikers and whatever it might be. And then as well as the the private one-on-one -on -one training. That is so, so cool. We will definitely link to that. I'm, awesome. I'm going to check it out. I'm psyched. <laughs> totally. Awesome. Uh, what's, what's next for you? What, what are you training for? So what am I training for? Uh, so I would love to do, so I'm doing Mount Baker with uh, a buddy uh, this coming up in May, which would be fun. Uh, it'll be his first time uh, on with crampons and it'll be my first time on a glacier. So it'll be a lot of, it'll be, it'll be interesting on there. Uh, and then my fiance and I are, we're getting married in July and we're, we're signing up for Kilimanjaro at the end of this year which would be Whoa. cool. Um, so we got to, uh, yeah, thank you. So that'll be a fun climb. We're excited for that. And then I would like to get more and more into that, the high altitude stuff myself in the future. Congratulations. And we'll be excited to follow you along on, on your honeymoon Kilimanjaro. <laughs> so, so cool. Awesome. I'll, I'll post lots of pictures then. Well, yeah, thank you so much. This has been so, so helpful, useful. I'm, I've learned a lot. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so well, much, Thank Billy. you for having me on. This has been awesome. I really enjoyed it. All right. You take care, Billy, and uh, yeah, talk soon. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Thanks, Billy. Great tips. Great insight. 
Hope you have a great spring and summer out in the mountains. Best of luck to you and your clients, and thanks again for all your advice. I know it'll help a lot of us out as we continue training for the backcountry this year. If you want to follow Billy, which Abby and I both recommend, make sure you check out backcountryfitness.com. It's all one word, backcountryfitness.com, where you can get free training plans, and also you can hire Billy as a coach. Also, make sure to head over to Instagram and follow two accounts, at backcountryfitness underscore and at Out and Back Podcast. We'll make sure to leave links to all these places in our show notes like we always do. Just as a nice casual reminder, if you like today's show, please go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review because it helps the show get noticed. And then finally, make sure to head over to GaiaGPS.com slash podcast to get that 50% discount on a Gaia GPS premium membership. That's 50% off on an annual membership with the gold standard backcountry navigation tool. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. This is Shanti, along with Abby, and we'll see you next time on Out and Back. Bye-bye.